this report doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't say you have to do this and then you have to do this. It doesn't provide us with such solutions or tell us that you need to do this. And that's up for us. We are the ones who need to take to take the decisions and we are the ones who need to be brave and ask the, the difficult questions to ourselves. The latest IPCC report on the state of the climate is terrifying, to say the least. It predicts no future in which the world does not surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which could have catastrophic implications for many people around the globe. However, it does still provide a small amount of hope that we may avoid 2 degrees Celsius of warming, which would avert the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. The thing is, it doesn't tell us how to get there. All it tells us is that our emissions would need to peak globally by mid-century. The actions we take now are critical to making sure that happens, but honestly, many of us aren't even sure what those actions need to be. I'm Sam Marchetti, and welcome back to On the Sidelines. Joining us on the sidelines again today to talk about climate action and what we can do as individuals to combat climate change is Sam Reynolds a conservation and chemical biologist master's candidate working with the Canadian Wildlife Federation, a science for everyone researcher, and a passionate environmentalist. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me. All right, so before we get into it, I want to clear something up because we get this question a lot and this kind of comment keeps coming up. We keep saying that climate change is the fault of large corporations. Why? How is it not my fault if I'm the one driving around in a gas powered car or flying to work? Right. We have a lot of people who like fly from Toronto to Ottawa back and forth every single day. And, you know, on top of that, do we not literally breathe out CO2? So how is it the fault of large corporations and not us? That's a very good question. And it's also a very complex question because, of course, like you said, there's an individual component. Um, but I don't think that means that we as individuals are responsible, if that makes sense. So I'll sort of explain what I mean. Um, we live within these systems that were not built by us as individuals, and we're sort of constrained by those systems. So, for example, you talked about driving around all the time in gas-powered vehicles. We don't really have reliable public transit. We don't really have bike lanes. Like, this is not the case everywhere in the world. Some places, they don't use cars as their primary form of transportation. But we in Canada especially live in a system where, you know, we've got urban sprawl and we have all of these things in place that sort of prevent us from being able to use alternatives for a lot of um, the time. So like the common things like that people tell you to do, like drive to work less, you know, bike instead of drive kind of thing. Those aren't really accessible options to a lot of us because of the way the system is set up. Is that right? Yeah. So in that case, it's like you're putting the onus on the individual, but we are not the people who put those systems in place. You know, there were when we decided to use highways and all these cars and to set up urban sprawl the way we did, it was more like government entities and corporations who had a vested interest in, you know, like I have a vested interest in GM or I have a vested interest in Ford and I want to make sure that people are buying vehicles. So there was sort of a a factor, a manipulating factor that caused the systems that we live in. And now we're sort of forced to live in them. And that doesn't absolve an individual responsibility completely. But we do have to acknowledge that 
most of this pollution, most of the CO2 emissions aren't coming from us as individuals. And if they are, it's often because we have to participate in these unsustainable systems that have been set up. So w- what are some of the ways that like larger corporations are, you know, emitting massive amounts of CO2 on their own without, you know, us as the individual having any involvement at all? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think for that, we look, there's like the Guardian put out an article that said, I think it's like 20 corporations um, are emitting a third of the CO2, um, which is obviously a huge amount. Um, And that's just like corporations, but also like government bodies were included in that list as well. Um, And I think a lot of it has to do with, it's tricky because again, you know, the reason they're producing the CO2 is to like satiate our needs is to respond to a demand. And so, you know, they're drilling oil and they're using all these unsustainable methods. But I also think what's kind of insidious about a lot of these corporations is they've been fighting and pretending that climate change doesn't exist and, you know, lobbying misinformation. So then I think there's also a huge fault there that, you know, they haven't acknowledged this big problem that they've been largely contributing to, if that makes sense. So one further question on this, which corporations are the worst? Like if you had to name one, like which are like the worst of the worst that we should absolutely, you know, just hate right now for the, for what they're doing to the environment? That's a really great question. So obviously we know ExxonMobil and Shell, they're not great. Um, so they were in, the, I think, like the top 10 at the last look that I, list that I looked at. But then you also have Pepsi-Cola, you also have Nestle. A lot of the corporations on those lists were actually not corporations, but full government bodies, which have huge outreach and huge, you know, tons of different pollution. So um, yeah, it's hard to say for sure who's the worst. And it's hard to put blame on one individual corporation. And just to give just to give our listeners some sense of the, the scale of those corporations, um, Pepsi-Cola was an example you mentioned. Pepsi-Cola is not exclusively like the drink Pepsi, right? Oh, yeah. They have tons of, you know, a lot of these corporations are you know, conglomerates of so many different companies and they have their hands in a lot of different pots and they have a lot of reach and a lot of influence on even government lobbying and things like that. So what's something that Pepsi-Cola makes that people don't expect? That people are like, ah, that's the same people who make Pepsi? Um, yes. So something you may not know, like some subsidiaries of PepsiCo is um, like Starbucks, Gatorade, um, Doritos. Those are brands that are owned by Pepsi. They've got a lot of different brands that you may not realize comes from Um, sort of the same overarching company. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of things you wouldn't expect for these companies really are they're huge. So Mm -hmm. we've established that, you know, it is their fault. Okay, and they need to fix their problems. For the most part, you know, it's on the uh, the onus is on the large corporations. How can I make any impact on my own? I can't stop like Ford Motors from producing fuel powered cars. I can't stop Amazon from doing one day shipping. I can't stop, you know, Pepsi Cola from, uh, you know, emitting while they're making their Doritos and Starbucks, you know, building new locations, I guess. Um, even if I boycott these services and products, I cannot stop them on my own. So what's like how can how can I make an impact in this area and get them to stop doing this? Mm-hmm. That's a really tough question. I think it's really easy to feel hopeless. I think a lot of people feel hopeless, especially like after seeing the IPCC report that came out. 
Um, but we do have power as individuals. And I really want this to be a hopeful podcast and not a doomful podcast that like we do have things that we can do, especially if we scale our individual action to a community level. So like the government works for us, even though it does not feel like it. Um, they kind of work for corporations too, but we have a say in our vote. We can also vote with our dollar. So we can choose to spend money at companies that align with our values. And it's difficult. It's not accessible for everyone. But I think that's a big thing that we can do is influence that supply and demand. Like you, we've seen in the last, I don't even know, five years, um, how much plant-based meats have increased, like the amount of vegan options that there are now compared to five, 10 years ago. And that's because of demand. Um, so we do have influence and we're able to enact great change from, you know, voting, going to protests, um, writing to companies and asking for what we want from them, educating ourselves and ultimately like scaling up individual behavior with our communities, our friends, our families. And I think boycotting also is a valid approach. Um, obviously one person's action doesn't make a huge impact, like you said, but I think that it can inspire change and I think it can inspire other people to also make that action. So it's kind of like the old trope, you know, change always starts with an individual, always starts with one kind of inspired person, right? 100%. Let's get as corny as we can. But I mean, look at like, <laughs> look at Autumn Peltier, look at Greta Thunberg, Jane Goodall, a man probably. Um, there's lots of people who have inspired change and they're just one person. So I think that that can inspire all of us to, to do the same. Excellent. So what about, you know, the uh, kind of the stereotypical environmentally friendly recommendations for people? You know, we're, we're being told to take shorter showers, walk to work instead of driving, this kind of thing. Are those actually making any difference if we have these big corporations in the background just emitting a million times that every day? Great question. So, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's not really making a huge difference. Your one individual action. And I have to stress that, that it's not one person's, it's not one individual's responsibility. You're not responsible for climate change, but you do have a responsibility to take action in your own life. And I think if it's accessible for you, because obviously that there's a privilege that comes along with that, right? Like if you're worried about what you're going to eat for supper tonight or how you're going to feed your family, climate change is not on your radar. And that's totally valid and totally okay because the onus does fall on corporations and governments. But there are four high impact, well, there's more than four, but I'm going to talk about four really high impact things you can do. So instead of just like switching your light bulbs or like taking five minutes shorter shower, those are pretty low impact. If you want like the most bang for your buck, I guess, in terms of like sustainability, there are four things you can do. The first one, a little controversial, feel free to cut it. Um, have less children. That's a, that's the biggest thing that you can do because you're obviously creating a whole new life and that life has a lot of needs and will emit a lot of CO2 throughout their life with all their decisions. So that's a big one. Um, second is take less transatlantic flights. So if you have an option to go on vacation in your country, instead of like, I haven't seen so much of Canada, there's a lot of cool stuff to see. Um, do that maybe instead of taking a transatlantic flight. The third was um, go car free, which is really hard in our society. So like, no worries if that's not in your wheelhouse. Um, and then the fourth thing would be changing your diet. So I'm sure you've heard that you know, plant-based diets can be a lot better for the environment, depending on how they're done. Uh, but reducing your meat intake is huge and reducing your dairy intake as well as can be huge for um, methane and CO2 emissions. So uh, that actually sounds great. And I've heard, you know, when it comes to the, the vegan diet, or the vegetarian diet for an impact, 
Something that I, I hear a lot is, you know, you don't need to go fully vegan or fully vegetarian. Even if you just take like a, a few days out of the week where you try not to eat meat, if you try to, you know, incorporate less meat into your diet, you're still making a pretty big impact. hundred percent. Yeah. I think it's weird because our society focuses so much on meat as like the central part of a meal. And it's like breakfast, lunch and supper all revolve around those yeah. like meat. And that doesn't have to be the case. And I think um, it's better for our bodies and also for the environment if we reduce even one or two days a week. Excellent. So what's the, what's the number one thing then of, you know, of the things you just listed, or you said there's more, what's the number one action we can be taking, um, to, to help reduce emissions that these large corporations are emitting? It's a big question and not to rip off Greta Thunberg, but she actually answered this recently. And I, I agree with her. Um, I think the biggest thing that you can do is educate yourself second to voting maybe. Um, but I think those are two of the major things that you can do. So, so educate ourselves and vote and they really go hand in hand, I guess. Right. You know, when we know more, we know what to vote for. Absolutely. Um, so on that note, what kinds of things, and this is uh, very relevant today, actually, I woke up this morning and found out that, uh, you know, Trudeau might call an election in September, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, apparently that's been confirmed. Maybe an election on September 20th. So what kinds of things are we looking for in a candidate or in the policies that we're voting for from, you know, an emissions point of view? Absolutely. Well, I can tell you what I'm looking for um, when I am going to vote. I want, you know, strong and immediate climate policies. I want that to be on the forefront of the platform. I want um, reducing subsidies for environmentally harm harmful industries. You know, the meat and dairy industry receive a lot of subsidies. The fossil fuel um, companies receive a lot of subsidies. I think that we should stop giving them money. <laughs> I think that we should be investing in um, green energy and green technology and helping to transition like those unsustainable industries, the workers in those industries towards green alternatives. I think that's huge. Like we can't just say, let's cut out all of these industries that are harmful and then just like leave the people who are employed behind. I think a big part of that is like use those subsidies towards transitioning those employees to have the skill sets that we need in a green or sustainable technology. Um, I think building a sustainable infrastructure is huge, like walkable communities, bike lanes, reliable public transit, so people can actually opt into that. Um, other things like conservation is huge, um, conservation of wetlands, old growth forests, natural spaces, things like that. Um, what else? Well, recently, I mean, we saw in the headlines, Ottawa says it must maximize revenue from the Trans Mountain Pipeline to fight climate change. No, <laughs> I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that we're, you know, let's invest in pipelines so we can fund green energy. Like, stop with the pipelines, provide clean drinking water to all communities, i.e. indigenous communities. I think that those are all huge for me when I'm So voting. this isn't a, um, just to be clear, this isn't like a, oh, what were they called? The, this isn't the same situation as the Infinity Stones where, you know, Thanos uses the stones to destroy the stones. We don't want to use climate change to destroy climate change. A hundred percent that, yes. <laughs> um, Okay, one more question for you here. So why should we be looking for things that focus on like conservation of old growth forests you mentioned and wetlands? Why should we be looking for those kinds of things um, in policies and not just like uh, greenhouse gas reduction policies? 
Well, those two things kind of go hand in hand, to be honest. I mean, wetlands specifically, amazing at water filtration, first of all. So like we have natural filtration systems for our pollution. How amazing is that? And instead of using it, we're going to plow it down and put up a mall. Like, no. Um, so we want to conserve those spaces. And they're also huge carbon sinks. They actually do um, store carbon CO2 um, in those wetlands. Same with old growth forests. You know, there's a lot of CO2 stored in there. So when you cut down those trees, you're releasing it into the atmosphere. And it's actually really harmful. And I imagine you're reducing the capability of, you know, our environment to uh, absorb CO2 back. Exactly. Yeah. So when we work on conservation, we end up conserving a lot more than we realize, like the soil and water and all these other amazing things um, that we need to survive. So yeah, that's a huge component and it ties in with greenhouse gas emissions really well. All right. Well, thanks, Sam. Uh, And thank you again for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about collective action, climate change, or any of the other topics we've talked about on the show, you can visit us on our Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. For more information on COVID-19 vaccines, check out our sister podcast, Vaccination, available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, Connor McLean, June Kim, and Cheryl Nguyen, with editorial help provided by Kayla Benjamin. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.